Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. In this episode of the Indo-Daily, the murder of an entire family. German businessman Thomas Niedemeyer was kidnapped from his Belfast home in 1973. As a foreigner and the honorary West German consul, Mr Niedermeyer was convinced he was safe. He was seized at his home last night when two men knocked at the door and asked him to come and inspect damage which they claimed to have done to his car. Then he was bundled into a dark green Morris car and driven away. No one claimed it. There was no ransom demand. He just disappeared. Officially, both the police and the German consular representatives are keeping an open mind as to the reason behind the abduction. But as each day passes, with no demands being made by the kidnappers, the idea of a personal reason behind the kidnapping becomes more and more likely. His family were left with only vicious rumours. They hoped he might be alive. But in truth, he had been murdered by the IRA and his body had been dumped less than a mile away. They took him to a house not far away and put him into a room, tied him up, and they hit him over the head with the barrel of the gun and then pushed his head down into the mattress and he died. Why was he killed? Why was his body hidden? And what impact did it have on his wife and children? A few years after her sister and mother had killed themselves, uh, she used an exhaust pipe to uh, to, uh, poison herself in in her car. I'm joined by David Blake Knox. He has written a book on the killing of Thomas Niedermeyer. It's called Face Down. David, thanks very much for joining us. Not at all. Who was Thomas Niedermeyer? Well, he was, a, uh, in Northern Ireland, he was a businessman. He originally came from uh, Bamberg, which is a small town, very picturesque small town in Bavaria, in uh, uh, southwest Germany. Um, he uh, became, uh, he, he joined uh, an organization called uh, Grundig. And Grundig at that time uh, was one of the biggest manufacturers of home entertainment in Europe. And he became a part of Grundig's management team. And as such, he was sent to uh, manage the first Grundig factory outside Germany, which was located in Dunmurray, just south of Belfast. And he brought his family with him to live in, he, in Northern Ireland. They'd been there, I understand, since 1961. 1961, he arrived with his wife, Ingeborg, and his two daughters, Renate and Gabrielle. And Grundig, I mean, it's a, it's a company which, which I, mean, I mean, I certainly remember. It, it was a massive employer in Dunmurray. It had more than 1,000 workers at one stage. Now, I understand 
that uh, Thomas Niedermeyer was was actually quite popular with his workforce. Yeah, he was very popular. I mean, he was extremely committed to it. He's, he was he had the reputation of being the first to arrive and the last to leave every day. Um, and he was also regarded as a very fair employer. And the factory um, catered, uh, was employed both Protestants and Catholics. It was regarded by its own shop stewards, at least by most of its own shop, shop stewards, as a kind of model factory in which there were no sectarian tensions or appeared to be none. Uh, and he was scrupulous whenever the troubles first erupted in ensuring that they wouldn't spill into the workforce. In fact, there were nearly 2,000 uh, employees uh, at the end of the 1960s. So it was regarded as a huge success, and a lot of that was attributed directly to him. And then one night, Christmas 1973, he's kidnapped. He, he disappears. Yeah, he was kidnapped two days after Christmas. Uh, two men called at his house. They said that uh, they told his, his uh, younger daughter, uh, Renata, that they had accidentally damaged his car and would he come out and look at the damage. And uh, he was asleep at the time. This was at about a quarter past 11 at night. Uh, and the only two in the house were Renata and Thomas. Uh, his wife was in hospital and his other daughter, Gabrielle, was staying with friends. Renate went and fetched him from his sleep. He came down wearing his slippers and uh, he went out to inspect the car. There was no damage that had been done to it, but he was overpowered by two men, bundled into another car and driven off at speed. He was never seen again, certainly by his family or friends. And as, it, trans right. as it transpired, he had been kidnapped by the IRA. Why? Did they kidnap him? Uh, the principal, there were two reasons, I suppose. The principal reason was that uh, an IRA unit had just been arrested en masse uh, in, in London for bombing um, a number of, uh, of uh, ventures in, in, in the capital. Um, and two of them were the Price sisters. At Ealing Police Station, the seven men and three women from Northern Ireland, taken off the Thursday morning plane to Belfast, are still being questioned. The army in Northern Ireland have confirmed that one of the women being interviewed at Ealing Police Station was arrested just over a month ago and then freed shortly afterwards. And the Price sisters had a particular importance within the IRA. First of all, they came from what was described as Republican royalty in that their family had been closely associated with the IRA for decades. Um, they were also the first women to join uh, the proper IRA as opposed to coming bond, which was the uh, women's section of the IRA. Um, so uh, after they had been sent, they both received lengthy sentences of 20 years each, and uh, they immediately went on hunger strike to be repatriated to Northern Ireland, uh, where they could en en enjoy uh, greater periods of remission for their sentence and also free association with other prisoners, other IRA prisoners. Um, the idea was that by kidnapping uh, Thomas Niedermayer, who was also the honorary uh, German consul, that would put pressure on the British government to repatriate the Price sisters. You mentioned there was a second reason. The second reason was, uh, yeah, the second reason was that uh, uh, the man who organised the kidnapping was a man called Brian Keenan. 
Uh, Keenan at that time was the quartermaster general of the whole IRA and a very important figure uh, in the leadership of the IRA. But he had also worked for a number of years as a shop steward in Grundig factory. He knew Thomas Grundig extremely well, and they didn't get on, um, to put it mildly. They had a, a number of quite serious confrontations uh, in the years that he was shop steward. And so there was considerable speculation that part of the reason that he chose Thomas Niedermeyer to be kidnapped uh, was because of a personal antagonism between the two of them. And, I mean, the irony of it is that he was considered by most, if not all, to be a very fair man. And certainly the trade unions reacted very negatively to his, to his, to his kidnapping. Yeah, at the time of the kidnapping, uh, Keenan was no longer working in the factory, so he wasn't one of the shop stewards. But the shop stewards issued very strong statements in which they described the factory as a model factory and praised uh, uh, Niedermeyer for his role in, in ensuring that there was no intention within the factory. Um, and uh, they were unaware that the person who had planned it was one of their former colleagues. But at that stage, he was involved in full-time occupation with the IRA and had left Grundy. So Thomas Niedermeyer was never seen again. Um, his body wasn't but, found, and we'll, we'll, we will return to that subject, but his body wasn't found for, for many years. So, hmm. I mean, what... Was anything said to his family? Were there any rumours? Was there any understanding? He just disappeared. Yeah, there were. There were. What happened was that he had been killed uh, by the IRA within a couple of days, um, and they immediately decided, uh, principally Keenan decided, that uh, they would not acknowledge that they had anything to do with his kidnapping. Um, as a result of that. They circulated a number of rumours um, quite effectively that he had not actually been kidnapped, that he had run off with uh, a woman, had deserted his wife and family. There were reports that he had been, uh, uh, rumours once again, unsubstantiated rumours that he'd been involved in running uh, guns to loyalist paramilitaries such as the UVF. They still say that it could be a political or financial motive by a group of Northern Ireland terrorists. But as each day passes with no demands being made by the kidnappers, the idea of a personal reason behind the kidnapping becomes more and more likely. Uh, so these were extremely hurtful allegations uh, that, that circulated very widely. And their purpose basically was to conceal the truth of what had happened to Niedermeyer. I should say that all of these rumours did not uh, solely come from the IRA. They also came from British intelligence officers who had their own different reasons uh, for wanting to discredit loyalist paramilitaries. This was at the time of the first Sunningdale Agreement, which had set up a power-sharing administration, and it was being opposed by loyalist paramilitaries and other unionist politicians, it has to be said. Um, and in order to... Uh, discredit them, the uh, British intelligence also circulated rumours that Niedermeyer uh, uh, had been involved in running guns in uh, grounded containers to the UVF. There's absolutely no truth in that. Those are absolutely extraordinary revelations, I suppose. And this is an utterly extraordinary case for many, many reasons. I'm struck by 
the remark of one RUC detective. He said, it, it was as if a man walked 25 yards to his front door and fell off the edge of the world. Yeah, yeah. As, as, as I mentioned, his remains weren't found for many years, but how did they cope with the fact that he just disappeared? Well, I, I suppose they coped in two ways. First of all, they, they survived. Uh, they managed to go on living, uh, which was an achievement in itself. But the price, the psychological and emotional price they paid was extremely heavy. Um, his, his wife was uh, uh, questioned by a psychiatrist uh, five years after he died. Um, this was uh, uh, at the request of the Northern Ireland office. Uh, and it was to see whether she was, uh, you know, uh, whether she was suitable to receive compensation. In the course of this uh, questioning, uh, the psychiatrist asked her if she believed her husband was dead. Now, this was five years after his kidnapping. And she said, no, uh, she still believed he was alive. And she prayed for him every night. Um, so, you know, the, the living with that, she also told him that uh, her life had been completely turned upside down and she lived from day to day wondering if uh, she walked in the street she might see him or someone would, would, might pass on other information that led to uh, his body being recovered and given a, a decent burial. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I was researching this book and this film was the importance of... of um, returning bodies uh, to people who had lost them uh, so that they could complete their their period of mourning and come to and begin to come to terms she was denied the the opportunity and so were her daughters of coming to terms with their father's death because there was so much uncertainty that went on for so many years that uncertainty came to an end after 7 years or or at least to a large extent came to an end after seven years because his remains were discovered in 1980, not a very long distance from his home. Less than a mile from his home. He'd been buried uh, under a rubbish tip uh, face down, which is why that is the title of, of both the film and my book. Um, and one of his killers had joked that the reason they buried him face down was so that he could dig himself deeper which is a kind of fairly chilling joke to have made in the circumstances. Um, and and as you say, it was only uh, less than a mile away from, from his home. How was the body discovered? It was discovered, uh, first of all, within a short space of time, the R- RUC had received fairly reliable information um, about who was involved uh, in in the kidnapping and the gardening. They knew almost everyone's identity, but of course they didn't have a body and they didn't have uh, enough evidential proof that they were uh, guilty. Um, so the, the real breakthrough came when uh, an IRA informant who was given the code name Disciple uh, and who was interrogated by a CID uh, inspector called uh, Alan Simpson. Uh, he he uh, admitted, to first of all, to his role, which was an important role within the army, but also he was able to tell them for the first time the precise location of where the body had been buried. Until then, they had they had quite a lot of information and, and a lot of it proved to be highly accurate, either coming from uh, well-placed informants or through uh, the confidential telephone. 
they knew at that stage where um, uh, Niedermeyer had been held briefly for a couple of days before he was killed. They knew roughly the area he'd been buried in, but it was a large area, and it was only when they got this precise information that they were able to locate the body and recover it. Uh, and uh, he was killed trying to escape. Is that the understanding that we have? Well, we don't know the exact circumstances, but what the evidence given by, by one of the men who uh, confessed to uh, having taken part in his killing was that uh, Niedermeyer had tried to shout for help, had tried to get down the stairs from the bedroom in which he was being held, that he was forcibly restrained. And at one point... Uh, he was. Uh, he received two severe blows to the head from a Browning uh, heavy uh, revolver. Now, I've seen the x-rays of his skull, and they show two severe fractures that were inflicted by, the, uh, by this gun, which, and, and they took dental impressions, which uh, established that the, that the fractures corresponded in size to the shape of the butt of the gun, which, which was unusually large. Now, despite the fact that the REC knew where his body was, I I, I shudder to say buried, I I think dumped probably is a unfortunately more appropriate word. Um, It's uh, recovering those remains was was not an easy task. Uh, Well, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, they took a very ambitious route, which which turned out uh, to, to be successful. They set up a fictitious, the RUC set up a fictitious environmental agency, uh, which is called the West Belfast Environmental Protection Group. And they uh, they went to some lengths, they hired offices, they designed a logo, they issued press releases, they gave interviews, um, and then four of them went to the site where they had been told the body had been buried. And they had received funding from the Department of the Environment to restore this area. And uh, to all intents and purposes, they were they were not activists. They were simply, uh, you know, environmentalists. They had been given uh, time for four weeks of excavation. And it was on the last day of the last week that they uncovered his body. Th- that line dig himself in deeper, face down, those are attributed to one of his killers. How, how, how do we know that? Uh, that was the evidence that was um, provided uh, both by um, both by disciple, the, the informant within RA, and with, uh, uh, through interrogation of the suspects. But it was also how he was found when his body was recovered. It, it was buried face down, as, as uh, the RUC had been told. It seems to indicate a hatred beyond an accidental killing. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems a very crude and inhuman way. And I think that you're absolutely right that even to describe it as a burial is misleading. It was, it was dumped uh, in the ground and then to add, if you like, to that, uh, that desecration, you might almost say it was covered in several thousand tons of rubbish. And in fact, this was one of the, uh, of the factors that upset his widow when she realized that uh, his body had been left in, a, in, in what was essentially a rubbish tip. Now, before we move on to the family, because unfortunately, 
the discovery of Thomas Niedermeyer's remains, in one sense, you would expect to sort of bring the story to an end, but it, unfortunately it really, really didn't. But there were two men charged and convicted in connection with Thomas Niedermeyer's murder. Yeah, they pleaded guilty in court. One man pleaded guilty to manslaughter, uh, claiming that he killed Mr. Niedermeyer unintentionally when he tried to escape and was later sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. But as I mentioned there, Ingeborg Niedermeyer, you know, as you mentioned, she believed perhaps he might still be alive. There must have been some relief when her husband's body was finally recovered, but in the end it was devastating for her. I think it was both. I think that the importance of giving him a Christian burial was very important for her. It uh, meant a lot to her. Um, on the other hand, it finally closed the hope that she had had and in pretty terrible uh, circumstances. So it was both of those things. It was, In a way, I think it was a short-term relief, but it, it didn't end the, the impact that his death and kidnapping had upon her. After the funeral, she decided to return to Germany. How many years did she remain in Germany? That's where she she was originally from, East Prussia. Yeah, when she went back to Bavaria, she had actually lived in Northern Ireland longer than she had lived either in East Prussia or in Bavaria. And she regarded it in many ways as her home. she she hoped that by going back to Germany, she would be making a fresh start. But she found it very difficult to settle into Germany. In fact, the letters that she wrote, she often expresses homesickness for Northern Ireland and misses her friends and, uh, and, and uh, you know, the contacts that she had there. And she talks quite often about visiting Northern Ireland. Um, she did eventually go back to Ireland uh, she went to stay in a hotel in Bray in County Wicklow uh, where she and her husband Thomas had spent a weekend uh, shortly after they arrived in Northern Ireland, a kind of romantic weekend getting to know Ireland and uh, she went back to that hotel and uh, three days after she had booked in uh, they noticed that her bed had been slept in and then two days after that her body was washed up Uh, at a place called Greystones, just uh, south of Bray. And uh, she had killed herself. As as tragic as that is, this story incredibly becomes even more tragic because the impact of Thomas Niedermeyer's murder obviously affected the whole family and... It affected his daughters also, and, and and this tragedy, this the effect of this murder, continued. It did. They did continue. Yeah. Shortly after Ingeborg had uh, killed herself, incidentally, I should mention that she wanted her ashes uh, to be scattered in Northern Ireland after her death, and so the the remains of both Ingeborg and her husband remain in Northern Ireland, of which they were extremely fond. But her daughter. Uh, Renate had opened the door to uh, the to her dad's kidnappers, and I, I, she found that very hard to live with. Afterwards, she was only thirteen at the time, and she developed uh, severe eating disorder, 
which eventually she died of, of organ failure that was related to bulimia, acute bulimia, which I suppose is another form of suicide. Her sister Gabrielle, the elder of the two <laughs> children, she wasn't there that on the night of the kidnapping. But again, she had a tragic end, tragic death. <laughs> She, a few years after her sister and mother had killed themselves, uh, she uh, uh, used an exhaust pipe to uh, to uh, poison herself in, in her car, uh, and she died uh, in, uh, in 1994. And, and that, was, that wasn't the last of the, no. of the sequel. Uh, her, her husband, Robin, uh, who was profoundly affected by her death, also killed himself. The actions of people in Belfast in 1973, and of course there are tens of thousands of people affected by the Troubles and everything which happened during the Troubles, we're focusing on this one family today, but I think... The point is, if there is a point at all, and of course there was no point, is that the murder of Thomas Niedermeyer, for no good reason at all, has had this massive effect across the generations. Now, he has a granddaughter, her name is Tanya Williams-Powell, uh, and she's spoken about this and, 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 and she continues to campaign on issues around this murder. Yes, uh, Tanya and his uh, other, Thomas and Ingeborg's other daughter, uh, uh, Rachel, uh, has also joined us uh, in making this film and in making my book. Uh, they have, they were, I should first of all say that their parents decided not to tell them anything about their family background while they were growing up. They did that to protect them as they saw it um, and to not burden them with that weight of memory. They didn't discover what had happened to their grandfather, their grandmother, or their aunt until after both their own mother and father's deaths. Then they found a box in, which contained uh, newspapers from Ireland uh, dealing with the kidnapping and its aftermath. And that was the first time that they learned uh, of what their family history was. And it was it was obviously uh, a a fairly profound uh, shock to them, but also helped to explain to them something of the difficulties that their family had endured in the years since the kidnapping. They did, they did get something, I suppose, as a family, um, which many many families haven't, and that's some sort of conviction. Of course, not that's everybody involved, but they do have that aspect. Uh, so, so, so I, I, I do note that because so many people didn't get that. But I mean, that's it's by the by, that's I suppose. Very, uh, no, that's a very important point. That that and that made, meant something even to uh, Ingeborg. And one of the things I should say about her, I mentioned briefly that she had a, quite a strong Christian faith. Um, after one of her, uh, after one of those who was convicted and sentenced uh, for the killing of, of her husband, uh, Ingeborg travelled to the family home of uh, one of those convicted. Uh, she, it was in the middle of a, of a pretty strong IRA stronghold, but she went there to meet the family and to tell 
the wife of the man who had been convicted, that she understood that her uh, family were now suffering in a somewhat similar way to her own, that her husband would spend many years in jail and that um, uh, her child, their children would grow up without the presence of a father, just as hers were having to deal with that. So uh, that was really a remarkable amount of kindness, generosity and humanity, I think, on her part. Do you think, by writing the book and, 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 and making the film, do you think this storytelling and telling their story is not only important, I suppose, for telling the truth and getting what a truth out there, if not the truth out there, but that this can have a positive effect in terms of legacy and history and how we deal with the past? I do, yes. I mean, I think that there there are two impulses that I think that we 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 feel about Northern Ireland, and I, you know, I speak as somebody who covered it for RTE's current affairs department for quite a few years. I think there are two impulses. One is the impulse to kind of say, "Let's move on, let's forget everything that has happened," and uh, I can understand that and sympathise with it in many respects. But I also think that sometimes there's an overriding priority, and that is to to analyse, to bear witness, to uh, respect the suffering of of people uh, who who were victims uh, of of the of the political violence that took place in Northern Ireland during those decades, and I think they, their voices deserve to be heard just as much as anyone else's. And in many respects, the only people who can say it's time to move on are the people who have suffered. It's easy for me, who hasn't, to say we ought to move on. At least it's easier for me, or would be easier. But I think that it's their right to have their experiences recorded and respected. David Blake Knox, thank you for telling the story of Thomas Nedermeyer today. This episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in mon Europe the end of Chacht Erachor. Agasuligum a Machan Shaw, Gurfader Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfame. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echol. The entalamaginom grev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatarin grevon or corson, Elistuhalagiskiminafracht, Gora Kligsar Dukashin Echor. Only Vin Aun, Thardarakshin, Vin Marav. Shachtan. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms.